So we're in Romans. Last week we finished Romans 6. And to sort of give you a brief recap, what Paul has been talking about up until now is the law and the purpose of the law. And the problem he's dealing with is since he has the Gentile franchise, Peter has the Hebrew franchise, the mindset about law is different among Gentiles than it is among Jews. Gentiles, when they think of law, think, A, should be obeyed, which is okay, that's fine. But they also think that somebody is going to enforce it and catch you if you don't do it. That is not what Torah is about. Torah is about advice from God on how his moral universe works so that you can keep from running afoul of your neighbor, your family, or anything else. And of course, my poster child for that is you can steal a sheep anywhere in the world and they'll have a way to deal with you. So God says, don't steal sheep. It is not the case that there's some celestial cop up there watching you, and if you steal a sheep, that celestial angel is going to come down and do anything to you. The purpose of the don't steal sheep is simply, if you steal sheep, things are going to go poorly with you. That's sort of thing one. Then thing two that we got into fairly heavily last time is the idea of following the law somehow gets you righteousness. And what Paul said is, no, that's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to teach you how to live. Righteousness comes from a relationship with God. And he uses the example of Abraham first, saying that Abraham believed God, yet it was counted to him for righteousness. And of course, he goes to the business that Abraham did this before his circumcision. So in the context of circumcision, what he's saying is circumcision is not necessary to obtain righteousness from God. And that's a big political thing within the early church. The other thing he says is he talks about Adam. And what he says is people continued to die long after Adam committed his original transgression, eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even people who didn't do the same stuff that Adam did continue to die. And the point of that is when Adam transgressed, what God said before he transgressed is don't eat of that tree because when you do eat of that tree, you'll become mortal. Now, one of the things that God does not say is when you eat of that tree, I will kill you. He doesn't say that. What he says is if you eat of that tree, you're going to become mortal. And once you have become mortal, your children after you become mortal also. And good behavior, which is to say doing your best to stay out of trouble with Torah, doesn't change the fact that you are now mortal. And the only thing that can change the fact that you are now mortal is the sovereign grace of God who grants you immortality. God bless him. Paul is wordy and Paul is convoluted. So I'm trying to do is sort of condense it. So what Paul is saying there is the law cannot give you 
either righteousness or the reward of righteousness, which is immortal life. Can't do that. The only thing that does that is Yeshua. And the reason Yeshua does it is he is the first fruits, which is to say he was born as one of us, born of a woman. He was born mortal. He lived a good life. And then he died just like everybody else dies. Went down to the dead and then comes up and is raised from the dead and he has a resurrection body and he now ascends to the right hand of God and he becomes two things. One, our brother, because he's human, and two, the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. And what that means is those who trust in God, as Abraham trusted in him, as David trusted in him, as any of the saints in the Old Testament trusted in God, as you do that, what you do is you come into a relationship with God, and that means then that when you go through the physical death process, which we all will go through, assuming Yeshua doesn't come back before we naturally die, so as you go through the death process and you come up the other side, because you have been adopted as sons and brothers of Yeshua, you now are immortal in your resurrection body. Now, one other thing he says is he talks about baptism, and we talked about that also. And what baptism represents is symbolic death and resurrection. The Jews regard baptism, or a mikvah, as the process of transitioning from the realm of death into the realm of light. Remember, Yeshua slapped Nicodemus around because he wasn't able to articulate that. And the fact that Nicodemus was not able to articulate that was a disappointment to Yeshua. In other words, it was something Yeshua expected him to be able to articulate, and he was unable to do that. So the deal with the realm of death is we live in this world where everyone is mortal. So periodically we transition into the realm of death. Poster child for that is if you are caring for a dead body. God forbid your uncle dies or something like that, and you have got to take care of the body, which is commanded. In that process, what you do is you enter the realm of death. That doesn't mean that you have sinned. You're doing the right thing, but you have now entered the realm of death, and in order to get back into the realm of life, you go down through the waters and come up, and you are symbolically reborn. And so that's what Paul is talking about when he's talking about baptism. I heard a preacher, kind of a nice way to say it, is I may have led you to believe that you only get eternal life after you die. No, you have eternal life when you trust in the Son of God and you decide to be one of God's disciples as opposed to your own flesh. Now, during the time when you make that decision, you may undergo physical death and almost certainly will but you are assured of resurrection to eternal life. So you have eternal life now, even though your body may undergo physical death, it probably will at some point in the future. So where I'm going to pick it up now is 620, and then we'll scoot on into chapter 7. So Romans 620. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. All right, now what does that mean? Everybody serves somebody. And if you were serving sin, you were 
free in regard to righteousness, which is to say you were not a servant of righteousness. In other words, if you're a servant of sin, that means you are not a servant to righteousness. I, I think that wording is awkward, but that's what it says. You're either one or the other. You're a servant of sin or you're a servant of righteousness. Everybody got to serve somebody. And what Paul is saying here, when he says you were free in regard to righteousness, what it means is you were not a servant to righteousness. 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So while you were a slave of sin as opposed to a slave of righteousness, you were getting fruit that you now regard as shameful. The end of those things is death. And again, the whole purpose of this exercise here is how do you back out the mortality that we all inherited from Adam? That's sort of the subject of this whole thing. And what he's saying is, if you are a slave of sin as opposed to a slave of righteousness, what's going to happen is you are going to be permanently dead when you die. And once you become a slave of righteousness, which is to say you become a servant of Yeshua or Yehovah, I believe they're the same being, I'm being formerly Trinitarian here, but once you become his bond slave, then when you die, you go through the death process and you are raised with a new body, a resurrection body to eternal life. 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You're going to be on one team or the other. You're going to be on your own team or you're going to be on God's team. And your own team, by the way, is de facto Satan's team. You just may not realize it. 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. And that's what I've been saying all along here, is that the only way to back out the mortality that was gotten on us from our father Adam is through the free gift of God, and he will give that gift to anyone who will trust in him. So chapter 7 now. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. All right, now that's going to take some unpacking. First off, I am speaking to those who know the law. One of the things we said at the beginning of this entire study is Paul has never been to Rome. The synagogue is where the books are. So if you are a Gentile and you come into a saving knowledge of Yeshua and you get the Holy Spirit and you talk in tongues and all that kind of stuff, you still need access to the books. I don't believe anybody would say that simply getting the Holy Spirit means that you then quit studying. Pretty much everybody I know who has the Holy Spirit also has a Bible. So if you want the scriptures, you have to go to the synagogue because that's where they are. So what you have in the synagogue is a mixed group of people. You've got standard black gangster hat, curly cue Jews, who are not Messianic, they are just Jews. You've got Messianic Jews, of which Paul is one. So he grew up in Judaism, understands Torah, understands all the Jewish writings, 
but he is also a believer in Yeshua. You've then got Gentiles who are in the process of becoming Jews. They are proselytes, and the Jews have a process by which a Gentile can be turned into a Jew, ultimately leading to circumcision. Finally, you have got Gentiles who have no intention whatsoever of ever becoming Jews. They have simply been saved by the grace of God, and they realize that they can no longer be the Gentiles that they used to be. They have to start learning about this God who has saved them. So you got these four groups of people, and part of what's going on in Rome is that these four groups conflict. So what Paul is saying in chapter 7 here is, I'm talking to you who know the law, which is non-Messianic Jews plus Messianic Jews, those who have grown up in Judaism and understand Moses and probably also understand the oral Torah. You need to understand who our audience is. In other words, he's turning around and saying, all right, I'm looking at you, you who understand the Torah. Gentiles, you can tune out for a minute. And then he says, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, when you read that phrase, if you are a Gentile, who is not the addressee here, what you think of is in terms of, I was listening to Ron Dart the other day, and the example he used was, Let's say that you're a bank robber, and you're a really good bank robber, and you decide finally that the cops are getting too close, so you stage a car wreck, and the body in the car is burnt up, and you leave your identification in there, and the police look at it and say, ha, son of a gun got killed in a car wreck. We can take all those bank robberies off of our books because the guy who did them is dead, and there's nothing we can do to him or with him anymore. That's the way a Gentile would take that. The reason I say that is that's the exact example Ron Dart gave. I will suggest that's probably not quite right. I will suggest another way to look at it is the Torah, the law, is instructions on how to live in the world. When you die, you are no longer in the world. You come into a different regime resurrection and so forth, where you are now in the world to come. Completely different regime. So the idea here that when you die, the law no longer has any claim over you is not because you have skipped out on your sins in the same way of our hypothetical bank robber. What it means is the law no longer applies to you because you are no longer under its jurisdiction. The law's jurisdiction is this world and this creation. When you die, you go to the next world and a different creation and a whole different spiritual and behavioral regime. The thing I'm suggesting is as you do this, you can very well understand how the modern church, which comes from a Greco-Roman understanding of things, reads this and comes up with our bank robber example. So the idea of a woman is bound by law while her husband lives. But when her husband ceases to live, he's gone to a different regime that is dissolved, not because there's any problem with the law, it's because one of the parties no longer lives. has gone to a different regime. Now we're all the way down to verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Messiah so that you may belong to another, 
to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passion aroused by the law work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit. Now, you just heard everything I've said about different spiritual regime. What Paul is saying here is, as you go down into the waters of baptism and you come up on the other side and you are reborn, you go into a different spiritual regime. He will reiterate over and over as we go on, that doesn't mean you are now free to go out and knock over a liquor store. What it means is you are now under new management. Now, one of the things he's going to talk about in terms of the law, which he starts to mention here, is the idea of sinful passions being aroused by the law. And that's what I call the two-year-old syndrome. As soon as you say no to a two-year-old, immediately the little rascal, you can just see it in his eyes, looks around, and as soon as your back is turned, that's what he's going to do. It's part of our human nature. It's very close to the surface in a two-year-old, but in a 50-year-old, it's still there. It's just been tamped down a little bit below the surface and one hopes brought under a little better control. But the impulse is still there. And so what Paul is saying is the written law, the Torah, when it says, thou shalt not covet, who? Covet what? What should I be coveting? What is it I'm supposed to be coveting here that it says I can't do? We just work that way. Another example I will give. One of the things that motivates hackers is simply there's a lock there. Let me see if I can get through it. They may not have any nefarious intent at all. Now, many of them do, don't get me wrong. But a lot of them just look at, oh, there's a lock there. Let me see if I can pick it. It's just human nature. That's who we are. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And what he's saying is, as you have got the Holy Spirit, what the Spirit does is it helps you get those impulses back under control. Now, as he's going to go down a little bit further here, he's going to say, even with the Spirit, I don't do a very good job of it. But that's the purpose of the Spirit, is to help you through that. One of the things I've said many times, and it's true, so I'll say it again. Twice in history, God has given his people guidance. The first time he gave us guidance was in the person of Moses when he gave us the Torah. That was on Pentecost at Sinai. The next time was at Pentecost in the upper room, and what he did is he gave us guidance in the form of a person, his spirit. And as I'm fond of saying, the nice thing about a written code, the Torah, is it doesn't change. You can go to pretty much any Bible in the world and with translation variations and so forth, you get the same message. As Mark Twain used to say, I don't worry about the parts of the Bible that I don't understand. Parts I do understand worry me enough. So you read Torah, any translation, and you'll get basically the same thing. The problem is the Torah doesn't change, but people change. Language changes. And so, for example, you could go back to the original King Jimmy 
and you wouldn't be able to understand a lot of it because English has changed so much. So since language changes, what God does is he gives us a person, the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit can do is help us navigate the language changes so we understand what Moses is saying. The Spirit will help guide you, not in any way contradictory to Moses, but will guide you in your life so that Moses becomes useful to you, as opposed to, oh, that's the thing that says I can't covet. I guess I better start coveting. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what he's saying is, just as we have been saying all along, the purpose of the law is to explain to God's people how God's universe works. That's all it is. And what Paul is saying is, since there are, in fact, don't do this, don't eat that, don't sleep with her, etc., in that set of instructions, what his human nature, which he's going to call the flesh, does is it seizes on those, and the two-year-old in him rises up and wants to do the very things that he is told not to do. Is he also talking about doing things that he did not at the time realize were sinful and only realized once he saw God's law, oh, wait a minute, that's wrong. So, for example, there's a tribe, village or something, somewhere in the Mediterranean, ancient, and there was a reef there, or, or rocks. And so what they did is they set up a lighthouse. And the purpose of the lighthouse was not to guide people away from the rocks, but was to guide ships into the rocks. And what they made their living off of was looting shipwrecks. So they set up a lighthouse to make sure that a ship sailing by there would not miss the rocks and would hit it, and then they would be able to go out and loot the cargo. This is how they lived. And what they did is they set themselves up a deity, and they regarded these shipwrecks as a gift from the deity. In other words, they justified it. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul grew up in Judaism. He grew up knowing the law. He's talking rhetorically here. So what he's saying is, before I understood the law, I would have been out there happily looting ships. But now that I know the law, I know I can't. And the whole point of all of this, over and over in Paul's letters, is that Torah is a gift from God to his people because he loves them. He doesn't give them the Torah to condemn them, he gives them the Torah so that they might follow it and live better. That's the purpose. And that's what Paul's saying here. Verse 13. 
Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be known to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, if you are a member of our shipwreck looting tribe, you are living off of stolen goods, but you're regarding yourself as okay. This is just what we do. This is how we earn things. And what Paul is saying here is once you understand Torah, the things that you are doing that Torah prohibits become to you exceedingly unattractive, exceedingly sinful, because you realize the depth of what you're doing. So let's pick it up at 13 again. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, this is not the devil made me do it. That's not what Paul is saying. I don't have time to go into Musar, but I will remind you of Musar. One of the things we were saying is that you are divided conceptually into a number of parts. For simplicity, you got a body, you got a soul, and a spirit. The soul is also divided into two parts. There's a part that you can have access to, and that's what I'm talking to you with, that's what you're listening to me with, that's your conscious mind. You've also got a part of your soul which you don't have direct access to, which psychology calls the unconscious mind. And what Paul is saying here, and everybody recognizes, is the unconscious part of you has great power and influence over how you behave. And the example I would give for those of you who have ever smoked, you can say in your conscious mind, I am not going to smoke anymore. And the next day, somehow you've got a cigarette in your mouth and you're smoking it. How did that get here? And it just happens because you unconsciously reach for a cigarette, light it up, and off you go. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I quit smoking. That's the kind of thing Paul is talking about. The thing that is part of him, that is not fully under his conscious control, has a great deal of influence how he behaves. And what he's saying is that part of him does things and he wakes up and realizes what he's done. Wakes up as in not wakes up from sleep, but going along and something, you know, he's doing something automatically. And all of a sudden, wait a minute, what am I doing here? Why am I smoking this cigarette? You don't want to smoke the cigarette. You've decided you don't want to smoke the cigarette. Your unconscious mind is not convinced. And until you get your unconscious part of you convinced, you will continue to backslide and lapse and do the things that you have decided that you don't want to do. And that's what Paul is talking about here. There's a part of him that does things that when he wakes up and says, well, wait a minute, what am I doing here? He realizes I don't approve of that at all. And so what he says is, 
when I look at what I've done and I've decided I don't approve of it, what I'm doing is I'm agreeing with the Torah that the Torah is good. It's just that this unconscious part of me is still not completely convinced. And he's calling that sin that dwells within him. That's what he's talking about here. It's not the devil made me do it. It is there's a part of me that is not completely under my control. And until that gets changed, which God calls a circumcision of the heart, until that gets changed, I am still going to lapse. It's sort of like me when I'm doing something, for example, in the shop and something slips and gets broken. An expletive comes out of my mouth. Now, I have trained myself that I don't blaspheme anymore, okay? I no longer blaspheme, but I do say some words that I'd be embarrassed to have you hear, but they're not blasphemous. (laughs) I'm making progress. But the point is, I don't think about it. It's just something has gone wrong, and I just go, ah, or words to that effect. 21? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. All right, stop a minute here. One of the things from here through the next chapter or so is he's going to use the word law in several different senses. He's got the word nomos, which is Greek, and nomos in the New Testament has to be used for Torah. It has to be used for natural principles. It has to be used for statutory law. It has to serve all sorts of purposes, whereas Hebrew is far more precise. He's writing in a language that isn't particularly precise in this context. And so when he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He's not talking about the Torah there. What he's saying is, I find it to be a principle. In other words, this is something I have figured out, this is not God's Torah. And when I used to argue with Christians on the internet, we would have just knock down drag outs over this part of Romans because many of them insisted on using every instance of law, no matter what context, to mean Torah, Moses. And that's not what's going on here. So. I find it to be a law or principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, here he's talking about Torah, so I delight in the Torah of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law. Well, if he delights in the law of God, then another law cannot be the law of God. Just doing grammar here. But it illustrates the point I'm making. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind. Yet another law. Against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The law of sin is not the Torah. It is this two-year-old behavior we've been talking about. So we've used law in one sentence in four different contexts, which is why, to the Western mind, this chunk of Romans is sometimes difficult to unpack. So let me read it all in a swoop. So starting in 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Yeshua Messiah, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Everybody got that unpacked firmly? I will guarantee you, you read it a month from now and you'll have to go through this all over again. Every time I teach this, I have to go through it and figure out what he's talking about. Because my Western mind has trouble unpacking it all and I've got to sit down and parse it. And I've done it often enough that I know that I don't understand it on a casual reading and that I have to stop and think about it in order to understand it. I at least have gotten to the point where I automatically recognize that a casual reading of this does not give me the truth of what Paul is saying. But our Sunday brethren have been handed this Roman law first and they see it differently. So chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Messiah Yeshua from the law of sin and death. Again, two more uses of the word law. The law of the spirit of life is the spirit guiding you to live a life of righteousness. The law of sin and death is what your flesh wants to follow and struggles against that. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, Torah, now he's talking Torah, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He's talking about two parts of himself. He's talking about the flesh, which is that inner two-year-old, and what he's saying is, is with the help of the Spirit, we can walk according to what God would have us do and we can keep the two-year-old down and under control, but it requires the help of God to be able to do that. And so he's saying, there's nothing wrong with the Torah. The problem is me. Torah is fine. Torah is right. Torah is just. Torah is good. I'm the problem. And with the help of God, through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us once Messiah ascended to heaven, through his help, I can do this. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what he's saying here is, being well-behaved does not make you immortal. The only thing that makes you immortal is changing sides, accepting God's lordship over your life, 
accepting his spirit and as best you can trying to walk as he would have you walk. And the fact that you still have this inner two-year-old that is going to make you fall short is not something that surprises God. He's made allowance for that. And that's what the sacrifice of Yeshua has done. The blood of Yeshua cleanses for all sin. So your sin is covered by blood. Not that you should say, well, my sin is covered by blood, I guess I can do whatever I want. No, because then you're living in wickedness. The whole idea here is when you wake up and realize what you've just done, that you repent and turn away from it and move on. So verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Messiah is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So what he's saying is your body continues to be mortal and will continue to be mortal until you plant it in the grave and it's raised a new creation. And Yeshua got his immortal body in exactly the same way. His mortal body was planted in the grave. He was raised incorruptible. That's how you're going to get your immortal body also, assuming Yeshua doesn't come back first. But it's been 2,000 years. At least the betting money is that you're probably going to go through that process. Let me pick it up at 9 and read the paragraph now. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Messiah is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And to go back to my preacher's thing, you have eternal life now. Your physical body that lives here is going to go through the death process and resurrection, but you have eternal life. It's a hard chunk of scripture. It truly is. And you can see why so many people come up with the interpretations of it they come up with. And as we go on, we're going to hit predestination, which is another big bump in the road. That will do next time, I think. This chunk of Romans is not simple, and it takes some unpacking to figure it out. And the thing, by the way, that allows you to unpack it is having spent a whole bunch of years studying Moses and the disadvantage if you will that many of your Sunday brethren have is they don't really study Moses and somebody hands them the scriptures gospel first often the gospel of John first and the gospel of John is wonderful but in order to really understand what's going on you got to study Moses and unfortunately many of our Sunday brethren neglect that part of the scripture and I believe that cripples their understanding.